So we are in the middle of a series that we are calling, I've been meaning to ask. And this series came about a few months ago as we, as we looked around and noticed that, that as we come out of this, this perfect storm that we've been living through in the last year, between the pandemic, between all of the civil unrest that's been going on based around racism, uh, coming out of the election cycle that left us all feeling wounded and divided, that many of us are feeling deeply isolated, disconnected, divided from each other. And so the idea of this series is to, to lift up four guiding questions that will invite us to, to engage in courageous conversations. And those conversations hopefully will lead us into a deeper sense of connection with one another and also with the world around us. These questions will lead us deeper into the heart of the matter, into deeper connection, not only with each other, but also with God. While the issues that divide us are complex, the questions that will bring us together are relatively simple, because I believe that all courageous conversations begin with simple questions and then simply having the curiosity to fully listen. Last week, the first question in the series is, where are you from? And today we're going to muster the courage to ask one another, where does it hurt? The scripture that will lead us into this conversation is from the book of 1 Samuel. It's from the Hebrew scriptures, what we oftentimes refer to as the Old Testament. And it's a book that many of us, I'm willing to bet, are not really familiar with. Biblical scholars and commentaries tell us that there are essentially two main themes in 1 Samuel. One is more public. It's political. It revolves around the search of God's people for, for a good and noble king. The second, the second theme is more personal and deals with the complexity of relationships, both between people and God and people amongst themselves. Here at the beginning of the book, we encounter Hannah, one of two wives of a man named Elkanah. Elkanah's other wife, Penina, has been fruitful and has borne him lots and lots of children. Whereas Hannah, whom Elkanah loves deeply, has been struggling with infertility, has been unable to bear children. Distraught, Hannah goes to the temple to pray. And there she encounters a priest by the name of Eli. And as you'll hear, she, she finally finds some peace as she explains her feelings in her own words. And when that pain is ultimately respectfully acknowledged by Eli. I want you to listen here that, that even though uh, Eli isn't able to fix the problem, to provide any type of solution, he's not able to take away her pain. He is able to, to accept her hurting and to pray for her. He simply is, is present to her, able to bear witness to her pain and to her sorrow. And in the end, that ultimately is the greatest gift that he has to give her. The one, as we will see, that makes all the difference. Today's scripture is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1-18. through 18. Here begins the reading. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, 
and the name of the other was Pinina. Pinina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of the hosts at Shiloh, where two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Pinina and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant you the petition you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your sight. Then the woman went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is interesting to me just how much time, how much energy, how many calories we burn trying to distance ourselves from our struggles, from those places of pain especially those places where the pain is the source or maybe even the cause of a deeper shame. Do you remember that popular self-help book back in the 70s, I'm Okay, You're Okay? It was written by Thomas Anthony Harris and was one of the best-selling self-help books ever published. It's a practical guide to transactional analysis as a method of solving problems in life. I suspect that some of you have probably read it. Now, if I were to write a book, it would be different. The book that I think that, that needs to be written, the one that is more honest, more hopeful, I would call it this, I'm not okay, and you're not okay, but that's okay. Brene Brown says the irony is that we all too often attempt to disown our difficult stories in order to appear more whole, more acceptable. But our wholeness actually depends on the integration of all of our experiences, including our brokenness. You see, the Latin word of the root integration is integrare, which means to make whole. 
In other words, in order to, to be whole, to feel authentic and genuine, rather than constantly compartmentalizing our lives and in hiding parts of ourselves, constantly editing our stories, we have to be able to own our experiences. Even, maybe even especially those places where we, where we make a mess of things, where we struggle. Brown goes on to say, owning our story and loving ourselves in the process is the bravest thing we will ever do. I read an interesting interview a while back with Shonda Rhimes, the creator, the producer, the, the lead writer for TV shows like, like Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and in the more recent Netflix hit, hit Bridgerton. She's a great storyteller, and she was asked once about the, the role of struggle in storytelling. And she said simply, I don't even know who a character is until I've seen how they handle adversity. On screen and off screen, that's how you know who someone really is. You see, sometimes those struggles, those pains, those places of hurt, they, they shape us. They make us who we are. The famous poet, Maya Angelou, was once interviewed by Bill Moyers. And in that interview, she described her childhood in Arkansas. It was a tough time, she says. I was not only black, but I was also ugly. And to be black and ugly in Arkansas was to suffer tremendously. She said she was scorned, that she was mistreated by the white folks because she was black. And by the black folks because she was a, a gawky, awkward kid. I wasn't cute, she said. And even to this day, even to this day, she will say, I still live with those scars. And at one time, I resented it. But now, now she's able to use that pain. I still have those scars, she says. But now, before I write a poem, I scrape the pen across those scars in order to sharpen the point. But yet, have you noticed, have you noticed, though, that rather than than doing all that we can to get in touch with our pain, that we have become a culture that likes more than anything else to be comfortable. Walter Brueggemann says that we surround ourselves with everything that we need in order to be comfortable in life. We fill our lives with softness and gadgets. We run from discomfort. You see, I would say that in many ways we are addicted to avoiding pain. We do everything that we can to, to relieve the hurt, to make the pain go away, to numb those feelings, to fill the emptiness and the silence, because, because that only reminds us of our brokenness, of our grief. A few years ago, one of my kids was sick, and it was late at night, but yet I still called our pediatrician, who was a member of the church that I was serving at the time. And I told her that my son was uncomfortable, he was agitated, he seemed to be in pain. He clearly had a fever. And so I asked her, what can I do? What can I give him just to make it all go away? And what she said in that moment, I will never forget. She said, no, Russ, the fever is there for a purpose. She went on to say that the heat from the fever, it creates an inhospitable environment for the germs, for the illness. The pain is there for a reason, she said. The best thing that you can do is to let the pain do its work. 
but yet we do all that we can to avoid the pain. But sometimes, sometimes the pain, the grief is the realest, most helpful place we can be. And if I have learned anything in 30 years of ministry, it's that grieving with another person, sitting beside them in their pain, is one of the holiest, most sacred places to be. Allowing our our hearts to be broken open, feeling one another's pain and our struggle is how we end up feeling connected with one another. Because grief is grief is grief and, and pain is pain for all of us. And that is the thread that runs through the human condition. That is the place where we can all connect. But not only do we do all that we can to not feel our own pain, to try and numb our own pain, we also don't make space for others to grieve as well. It's just not a skill that we're taught. It's uncomfortable, and that's why we're afraid of it. We shy away from it. That's why we rush in and we try to fix, we try to solve the problem, we try to take away their pain. There was an article in the New York Times a while back, an opinion piece written by a 35-year-old woman who has stage 4 cancer. Ironically, this same woman has written a book simply entitled Blessed that talks about the prosperity gospel, the belief that that God grants health and wealth to those with with the right kind of faith. But now, she says, after this diagnosis, living with what she's living with, All that, she says, has gone out the window. In that piece, she talks about how one of the saddest things about being sick is watching people's attempts to make sense of your problem. She tells of a a neighbor that knocked on the door one evening and, and handed her husband a casserole. And trying to make nice, to make conversation, she simply, she simply said, everything happens for a reason. Well, I'd love to hear it, he said. And in that moment, she was a little shaken. I'm sorry, what did you say? The husband simply said, I'd love to hear the reason that my wife is dying. You see, never will we know the damage that we do in moments like that when we rush in with our simplistic answers, with our cliche theology. Brene Brown once said, I used to think that faith would say, I'll take away your pain. I'll take away your discomfort. But what faith ended up saying is, instead, I will sit with you in it all. And what she came to see is that is enough. In fact, that's everything she ever needed. You see, in those moments, in our encounters with those who are struggling, that those who are in pain, the best thing that we can do, the most faithful response is to simply be present. I know of a man whose wife was dying in the hospital. And their neighbors and their friends, they came running and, and they were gabbing and talking. And, oh, I'm so sorry, they said, with their thoughts and their prayers. But voices, voices, voices is all they heard. And after they left, the family said, we couldn't wait for them to go. But in their church, though, there was a man. He was a deacon. He made his life, made his living by by being a mechanic. And one day he walked into the room and he simply sat down and didn't say a word. He sat there, stayed for hours, and then quietly left. 
they would tell me later, we never wanted him to go. You see, church, in this time, in this age, when we are feeling disconnected and isolated and divided, perhaps the most important thing that we can do is to allow our hearts to be broken by the pain of other people. To simply sit with them without trying to fix or heal, but instead just be present. Notice in the story that we just heard, the story of Hannah, that this woman who had been belittled and patronized, who had been provoked because of her infertility, a condition over which she had no control, that she is finally able to give voice to her grief, to her pain, to her sorrow in her own words. And even as Eli himself is not able to provide an immediate solution for her, he's not able to, to fix or heal her, he is able to accept her hurting and to simply pray for her. Eli doesn't have to solve anything to be present. You see, grief in many ways is similar to joy. It's not something to be fixed. It's an honor of being human. It helps make us who we are and who we are becoming. So when a friend, when someone we love, someone you care about is is grieving, all we have to do is to simply be present. Because, Because if we just accepted our presence as the best gift that we can give, instead of always trying to find the right thing to say, we we would feel more capable of grieving with each other, of bearing one another in their pain. Where does it hurt is one of those questions that acknowledges that we all struggle that we all grieve, that we all experience pain, that we all hurt. And it says that even if your pain, if your story, if your experience is different than mine, that I value you enough as a human being to ask you that question, that I value you enough to listen and to accept your response. That even if I don't have the answers, if I don't have a solution, if I can't fix it, that I value you enough to listen to your experience, to be present with you in it. You see, church, if we are going to be people who bring peace and healing to this hurting world, that we must be willing to pause, to sit, to simply bear witness to the pain, to our own pain as well as the pain of other people. You see, never are we more like God than when we do just that. Because ultimately, that is who God is. God bears witness, bears witness to our pain, stands with us in the midst of it, and calls us to do the very same for other people. Amen.